Well, here we are at Noct- <laughs> Nocturnal Journal. We're going to uh, just kill some time. I'll give you the, uh, the lineup for the show tonight. Uh, after the news with David Jennings, we are going to have, he's been on deck for uh, a couple months now, Phil Scalar, the uh, co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. That'll be the first half hour. And uh, then calling in from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, will be our friend Mike Veck. Uh, co-owner of the St. Paul Saints and son of the White Sox owner, Hall of Fame owner, Bill Veck. And then we're also going to uh, look at the Studs Turkle Award winners from a pro- uh, public narrative. And uh, that'll be from the 10.30 to 11 hour, 10.30 to 11 o'clock hour here on WGN, Nocturnal Journal. So here we go. We're going to have David Jennings in the news. And uh, we'll be back with Nocturnal Journal after this. So thanks for hanging out. Hi, this is Tanya Tucker, and you're listening to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian Plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't need maybe. Nine to five Welcome to Nocturnal Journal. This is Dave Hoekstra, and on the phone we have Phil Scalar, co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Right, Phil? That's right, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on tonight. Uh, last weekend at this time we were hanging out with Tanya Tucker, as you heard, and now we're hanging out with you. So, Yes, yeah, I'm glad to be here and just say that... Great busy day with tons of visitors checking out all the bobbleheads at the museum, and now uh, get to talk bobbleheads. So nothing better than that, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, I can't remember <laughs> when I was up there. I was up there sometime in early summer and stuff. Uh, talk about first of all where the museum is at, and then talk about why the museum uh, started in Milwaukee. Yeah, so we're uh, right downtown Milwaukee. Uh, people familiar with the area, right in the Third Ward. Uh, basically right downtown, close to a ton of restaurants, shops, uh, the Amtrak station, which a lot of people take the train uh, back and forth from Chicago to Milwaukee. We're only 10 minutes from Miller Park and by the Summerfest grounds, so really centrally located with about 6,500 unique bobbleheads on display. Um, got started as a personal collection with me and the other co-founder just uh, enjoying bobbleheads, and our collection started to grow out of control the same time we started to uh, look into producing a bobblehead of a friend of ours to honor him and raise money for Special Olympics. And uh, we combined those two ideas to have the museum and the production uh, company that makes bobbleheads and markets them. And uh, here we are about five years later. We opened on February 1st to the public, and uh, so far so good. Uh, some um, language things. When you say unique bobbleheads, sixty-five hundred unique bobbleheads. What does that What does that mean? <laughs> so that means you know sixty-five different, sixty-five hundred different bobbleheads. Uh, so you know there's not uh, a thousand of the same bobbleheads in there, but yeah, uh, yeah there are some very unique ones as well. Um, you know, it really runs the gamut. There's everything from you know the baseball. Uh, which everybody expects and thinks of when they think of bobbleheads to, you know, movies, music, politicians, um, anything and everything that's ever been turned into bobblehead form is is represented at the museum. And uh, I toured it with you. You know, I was I was pretty excited. I have I have about 
150 bobbleheads. <laughs> but uh, talk about how the museum is laid out. I mean, it, you kind of go in themes and sections and stuff. So when a visitor comes to see you, uh, how do they approach the museum? Yeah, so we give visitors a little brief overview when they come in. Uh, we have several front desk staff who are friendly and love to answer questions and uh, show people the museum. And uh, so it's laid out regionally. Uh, so the very first section is uh, the regional babbleheads, which leads into the local. Uh, so the middle area is all the Wisconsin babbleheads. We get some heat for having the Chicago and Minnesota babbleheads first, but uh, we do have uh, quite a few of those, but even more Wisconsin babbleheads. Um, and then baseball, basketball, football, hockey, um, all the other sports, so soccer, uh, boxing, you know, everything else, lacrosse, um, have their own areas. And then that gets into the uh, non-sports, so every, politicians, music, movies, comics, serial characters, um, really, you know, have, um, just anything and everything. Uh, but, yeah, laid out uh, by category. And then we also have uh, Timeline, which has the history of Babblehead, the, the story of how they started to how they got to you know, being this sort of cultural icon that they are today. Uh, also a uh, life-size bobblehead and a wall of champions, which has the current champions for all the MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL, and then the oldest bobblehead. So, you know, getting back to the turn of the century and uh, the very first sports bobbleheads as well. You really do have uh, some unique bobbleheads. Uh, you had I mean, I'm just throwing this out. Wendy O. Williams from the Plasmatics, the rock band. You know, she's passed away. <laughs> I couldn't believe I saw yeah. that there. You've got rock and roll bobbleheads. You know, you you have, you have, I saw a Dr. Martin Luther King bobblehead. Yeah, so yeah, it really is everybody. We have a, a section, which we didn't talk about yet, but we're um, famous Wisconsinites and also famous uh, people from history are, are profiled with um, bio for each one so you know people coming in just expecting to see bobbleheads you leave with some knowledge and hopefully it piques your interest in some topics as well but everybody from martin luther king to uh, gandhi and um you know jackie robinson's profile rick monday from the cubs uh, saving the, the flag with the flag right uh, yeah. yeah so we picked out you know the bobbleheads that uh, you know show moments or that have more information behind them which most bobbleheads do you know it's not just a, a person or a, a character it's there is a story behind there and that's one of the interesting things that you know we hear visitors talk about as they go through the museum and you know whether it's a little kid pointing it out to their parents or grandparents um, or grandparents pointing it out to the, you know their grandchildren or their children uh, just a lot of really interesting and fun conversations being had about the different bobbleheads that people see. You hit the nail on the bobblehead right there. I mean, every bobblehead has a, has, has a story. You know, we, I was talking to my friend Mike at Wrigley Field this year, and uh, I like getting them in person because there's always, as opposed to ordering them off, off of eBay or something, because there's an experience. You know, every, you know, I didn't even think of that when I went up and saw you this summer, but every bobblehead does have a story, whether it's a story of history or a story of securing the bobblehead. It's, it's, it, it can get kind of deep. Yeah, it can. Yeah. yeah, and some of them, I mean, are more obvious than others. So we were looking at some White Sox bobbleheads with a uh, visitor the other day, and I mean, there's Ozzy Guillen with the World Series trophy, and you know, for Sox fans, that brings back the ultimate memories. And you know, real close to that, the Cubs World Series bobblehead, and you know, Cubs and Sox fans know exactly where they were. You know, the moments that 
to those key, you know, World Series final outs and the games leading up to the World Series, where they were, who they were with, you know, some of the tears that they shed. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, for both sports and on the non-sports side as well, it just brings out some really fun conversations and brings back some terrific memories. You mentioned uh, visitors. Um, two questions there. What what uh, are the questions they ask of you, and what su- what surprises what surprises them? The number one question we get is who dusts all these bobbleheads. <laughs> uh, so we ask them if they want to volunteer, or um, you know, if they know of anybody. But we do have uh, a really great team that uh, helps out with with those sort of things. But aside from the dusting question, is where did all these bobbleheads come from? Um, so that's the other key question and you know the answer to that is started out as the personal collection but once we announced the idea to the public you know people really embraced it and teams and individuals and organizations have sent in bobbleheads that dropped off bobbleheads since pretty much day one really helping to make this such an eclectic collection and uh you know we've been really blown away by that and one individual from cleveland who donated uh, 1,500 bobbleheads, bobblehead Bob. Uh, he was known with from his friends. Uh, he had cancer, terminal cancer and learned about the museum and wanted his bobbleheads to be you know, seen by other people who could enjoy them. And so that every day now people are seeing his bobblehead. Yeah, talk uh, so a little really, bit more about him. Really you have a section devoted to him. Uh, yeah, we do. And it was uh, great. A couple weeks ago, um, his sister who introduced him to the museum and found out about us and you know, they had some conversations about, you know, he was trying to decide he had other collections as well, but 1,500 bobbleheads and, you know, what do we do with all these? And, you know, they talked and said, you know, this would be a perfect place for him. And she helped coordinate it and helped, you know, in his final months um, get that donation to the museum um, all ready to go. And it was great because we were able to, you know, we asked him what he wants, you know, we wanted to, you know, see if there's anything we could do for him. Um, and he said, oh, it'd be cool to have a story in the local paper or just a blurb or something. And, you know, CNN, ESPN ended up picking up the story after, you know, his local, the local TV stations in the Cleveland area picked it up. And so that was just, uh, you know, hearing his reaction and uh, hearing, you know, how much it meant to him was, you know, phenomenal. After our break here in a minute, I'll, I want to talk about how you got into this. But are you surprised? I mean, the response has been very, very strong. Is it has it been stronger than you thought it would be? It has. Yeah, we you know didn't know exactly what to expect, but uh, you know February first we opened the doors and people started to trickle in. And you know every week we're busier than the previous week for the most part. Summer was just we were blown away by the volume of visitors. We've had visitors from every state. We have a map uh, both. U.S. and international, where people can put a pin where they babbled in from. And, uh, you know, several months ago, we were already had visitors from all 50 states. Uh, and I think now we're at about 30 or so countries. So, yeah, people are coming from far and wide and just intrigued by the idea and wanting to learn more, see more. And, you know, it's a one-of-a-kind place nowhere else in the world. So it's, uh, you know, like people have, uh, you know, embraced the idea. You're at 170 South 1st Street in Milwaukee? Yes, right downtown area. So, yeah, if you're coming to Milwaukee, you're going to be within a few-minute uh, drive or walk of uh, of the museum if you're in the downtown area. And shoot out the website. 
The website's babbleheadhall.com, and we have all the visitor information. We're open uh, seven days a week, so no excuse. Uh, if you're in the area, we're going to be open you know, 10 to 5 on the weekends and 10 to 6 Monday through Friday. And what's the admission? Uh, $5. So set it nice and low so everybody could enjoy it. Uh, wanted to get as many people in as possible. And so I think uh, we've had some people tell us it's the best $5 they've spent. Obviously, you know, not everybody uh, is as excited as the next person. That was a bobblehead collector who just, you know, was blown away. But we do get a ton of people who are just uh, sort of blown away and say they wish they allocated more time because there's just so many bobbleheads to see. We've had actually more repeat visitors than we've expected as well and are planning some special uh, events and exhibits to get people back as well. Yeah, it's um, it's it's it is quite it is quite a place. So we're gonna take a break, and then I want to talk uh, a little bit about your uh, recent bobbleheads and how they get manufactured, and then how you guys got into it. So you can hang around a little bit longer. Sounds good, Dave. Okay, I'll thanks, be here. Phil. Okay, don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. I'm gonna get on the old turnpike, and I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna leave this town till you decide. Which one you want the most, those opera stars or me? Milwaukee, here I come from Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. I'm Dave Hoekstra with Roe Coleman uh, producing. Roe, you, you got any bobbleheads, Roe? I don't have any bobbleheads, well, actually. I, I used to think they were kind of creepy. <laughs> Phil, Phil, uh, Phil Scalari, uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Do you get that? Yes. Do you get that a lot? That people are kind of sometimes weirded out by them? You know, we've only had a couple people who've mentioned that. They've had, you know, there's one person who said that, you know, they didn't bring somebody with because they had sort of a bobblehead phobia. So, uh, <laughs> but it's not someone we hear too much. I mean, there's uh, most people either have at least one or, you know, have had one at some point in their life. And we get quite a few people who have dozens or hundreds or, you know, several hundred or, you know, every once in a while, somebody who has a thousand or so. We played a little bit of John Prine there, uh, driving the freeway up from Nashville to Milwaukee. And I, after I met you, I had time to think. I, I want the listeners to know about, I don't know how you turn these out. And I, I don't think I asked you this when I saw you. Uh, we'll have the uh, text version of our interview uh, attached to the podcast. But you guys, you jump on all these trends. I mean, I, I know there's trends since I lost ta- lost talk to you, but Chance the Snapper and Alligator Hunter bobbleheads, you've sold those. Sister Jean, her 100th birthday bobblehead. Um, so talk about some of the recent bobbleheads you've put out. How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, we're always, uh, I guess, 24-7 thinking bobblehead. So when we see something, you know, whether it's a play at a, in a game or, you know, a viral character, uh, like a Chance the Snapper type event, uh, we immediately think, oh, could that be a bobblehead? And then a lot of cases it could be, and not all of them turn into bobbleheads. Um, you know, it definitely have to be timely, you know, releasing a chance to snap a bobblehead a year later probably isn't going to have the same effect so you have to get on it right away and uh, crank uh, crank out a really nice rendering so people can see what the bobblehead will look like and uh, you know chance to snapper was really popular and we were able to work with uh, Frank Rob the alligator hunter who caught chance to snapper and do a bobblehead of him as well but now you're uh, doing yeah. uh, Frank Rob's new girlfriend that's probably the third one <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, I mean, there's uh, endless possibilities. You know, we always uh, 
joke when we're talking to people that we're never going to run out of ideas, and it definitely is uh, is true. So, well, you know, uh, just to, yeah, not to get real wonky about bobbleheads. So, how long where are the, where are these made, and how long does it take for them to be turned around? I mean, how how immediate are you in manufacturing these? Yeah, so the quick, the, you know, the most important thing is turning around the rendering really quickly so people can visualize what the bobblehead's going to look like. Uh, the process, you know, takes about 90 days from start to finish. So, you know, we come up with the rendering and then start the production process. But uh, bobbleheads are produced in China these days, and they started out being produced in Japan and have always been in that Asia-Pacific region, just uh, given the nature of how they're produced and their hand uh, assembled and hand painted, which is uh, you know something that isn't cost effective uh, in this region. So they have to be you know produced there to make them uh, affordable for people to be able to you know buy them for between twenty and forty dollars, or for a team like the White Sox or Cubs to give them away at a game. So uh, uh, so yeah, we. Yeah. So I bought a I bought a Trump uh, Kim Jong Un bobblehead from you in your gift shop. We'll get to the gift shop. So these are made in China. Are, are you affected by the tariffs and all? So bobbleheads currently are not affected by the tariffs. They're not one of the goods on the uh, the very long and growing list of goods affected by the tariffs. Um, but uh, you know that could obviously change as more goods are added. Uh, so yeah, we're always we're monitoring that as well. But yeah, Trump and Kim Jong Un is a uh, is one that's turned a lot of heads, uh, so to speak. <laughs> well, now, this this might affect you. I, I want to talk about this. This is great. I mean, you're going to have a political theme special exhibit next year to co- coincide with the 2020 yeah. Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. So there you go. So talk about what yeah. you're going to be doing with that. Yeah, so every day pretty much now we are working. We have a couple people working on getting everything planned out and ready to go. Uh, the goal is to have it all up and running by uh, early February, which is when the Iowa caucuses are uh, held. And so, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, We have uh, one bobblehead for every president, at least, uh, and those will be on display and with a bio and fun fact about every president. Um, There's some really interesting facts out there about each one, so it'll be a fun thing to highlight. Um, And then, you know, just uh, taking people through the history of the country through bobbleheads, and then also looking at the 2020 Democratic uh, cycle through bobbleheads. So bobbleheads of the candidates, everybody from, you know, Mayor Pete to Joe Biden, you know, um, Yang, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, all the candidates. And so it'll be a fun way to sort of look at how this, how we got to, you know, where we are or, or where we'll be uh, in mid-July when the eyes of the nation and really the world are on Milwaukee and on the region uh, as we host the Democratic National Convention. You know, I'm going to give away my age here, but I did see this in your museum. Um, the, the earliest uh, I remember those little figures of LBJ and Goldwater. Are those? I think you had those there. Were they bobbleheads or just figurines? Yeah, so everything in the museum bobbles. Yeah. Um, so if we had them there, yeah, they bobble. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we, we will have some of the oldest political bobbleheads, which date back to the 60s, um, JFK really old, some old bobbleheads of him some, some of them worth close to a thousand dollars so if you have you know one of those in your attic or uh, basement definitely uh take a look at it and maybe check ebay or uh google it and see if maybe you have one of the, you know one of the rare older bobbleheads because some of them can actually be quite valuable i don't know i don't think bobbleheads are really creepy but what happens at what's it like when you turn off the lights at night do they all do they all say do they all say good night do whatever <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, there's uh, we have a couple. Some of the staff have joked about you know potential uh, creepy scenarios or things like that. We had a really weird looking dog. Uh, bobblehead that was donated to us and the family was sort of happy to get rid of it. So, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, some people who uh, have theories of haunted or creepiness might uh, have some thoughts in their mind about that. We do have some horror movie bobbleheads. So every time I sort of walk by the shelf that has the Chucky bobblehead, I have to look up there to make sure he's still there and in the same position. (laughs) We haven't had anything uh, anything happen, so. Um, so I don't want to overlook the gift shop. There is a gift shop there. Uh, how many items do you have in the gift shop? Yeah, so we have over 500 unique bobbleheads available for purchase in the gift shop. Everything from, you know, Sister Jean and other bobbleheads that we've produced to, you know, Cubs, White Sox, Bears, Bulls, Brewers, uh, you know, hundreds of different teams, uh, Kim Jong-un, Presidents, uh, you know, as you mentioned before with the Trump bobbleheads. So uh, everything, every range of the spectrum is really covered. And then we have merchandise like T-shirts and hats and so forth as well. And um, it's really a sampling of what we have on our website, which has over 3,000 unique bobbleheads uh, that fan- people can buy. And um, bobbleheads make a tremendous gift. So really fun, you know, if somebody loves yeah, Dennis Rodman, for example, what better way to show your love for Dennis Rodman than with the Dennis Rodman bobblehead? <laughs> I was on your website. I saw you had the Trump with the with the with the um, the marker with the sharpie uh, that was in the news. Any any other brand new bobbleheads that I don't know of? Yeah, so the Trump sharpie gate is one of the newest ones that we have. Uh, that one got some some fun attention. You know, we thought that was one of those moments that uh, we'd have to turn into bobblehead form. Um, other new ones, yeah, we're always working on, on new ones. So, you know, the Bulls are going to be hosting the All-Star Game this year, so we have a All-Star Game bobblehead that we're starting to get in the works. And uh, some new Bears bobbleheads uh, for the 100th anniversary season. We have Staley the Bear with the 100th anniversary logo, and um, those have been popular, especially with the Bears doing bobblehead giveaways um, at every game this year, which is really unprecedented in football. Um and our Home Alone bobbleheads, uh, we have added to that line every year. And obviously a regional movie with that being filmed in the Chicago area. And, uh, you know, a fan favorite of pretty much everybody. That's one that, you know, last year we added John Candy. And uh, we'll be adding another character or two, hopefully, uh, coming up. It's amazing. We could talk about this all night, right? Oh, yeah. We could talk about bobbleheads nonstop. Uh, it's just uh, sort of a never-ending uh there's so many different ones out there that it just doesn't get uh, doesn't get old. Now here, you have a Master's of Science in Accountancy degree from the University of Notre Dame and a Bachelor of Science in Finance from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. You, you told me that. Yeah, and we missed the MBA from Northwestern. Oh, but, we missed um, that. <laughs> that was, I, we might have, I, I, I'm, I am, uh, you know, I don't like to brag a lot. Uh, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, I think those are things that helped uh yeah, help with the idea, and I don't think we'd I'd be where we are. You know, we'd be here if uh, it wasn't for some great education that you know took a lot of work uh, on the marketing and finance and really all different sides. And the team, you know, me and the other co-founder poured a lot of uh, resources and time into to helping to try to get where we're at today, and uh, you know that definitely helped. 
That's Brad Novak, the other other co-founder, yes. right? Yeah. And uh, we only got a minute left, but yeah, that was my question. I'm sure that play that played into you helping to get a business jump started, right? Yeah, in the Northwestern MBA, you know, I was working in corporate finance and um, went to Northwestern to get that MBA to sort of get that marketing and entrepreneurship and leadership, you know, skill set. And while at Northwestern, it was sort of when we came up with the idea to create the bobblehead and then, you know, that experience sort of gave me the confidence to say, hey, let's take this a step further and see what we can do. Okay, well, thanks, Phil. I'm going to I'm gonna come up and see you um, maybe for the buck season, okay? Sounds good, Dave. You're welcome anytime. Phil Scalar, CEO and co-founder of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. We'll be back with Mike Feck, but first, let's hear David Jennings in the news on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and on the phone uh, we have our dear friend. He's a semi-regular on the show, Michael Vec. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well, Dave. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Thanks for joining us. I know it's uh, an hour later where you're at. So, um, you know, we always like to play Prince when you're on the show because of your affiliation with the um, St. Paul Saints. I was thinking a lot about you this week. Um, I I went to the Sox-Cleveland game, and, of course, your family has history with both those teams. And um, I saw uh, the—I want to tell the listeners about your little championship parade you had up there in in St. Paul. And then I want to talk about Satchel Paige, who also was in the news this week. But talk about uh, how things went this year in St. Paul, and I think what you guys did with the the one-block championship parade was, was pretty neat. Well, you know, the um, um, the fact of the matter is is that with the PBA, the Professional Baseball Agreement, coming up, um, I think that independent baseball is going to be certainly a, a quiet seat at the table, um, if not actually represented. And so, you know, 28 years ago, we started this called the Northern League that the American Association, Miles Wolf, had the idea. And it's grown um, into a really terrific league and and part of a group of leagues kind of loosely affiliated called independent which simply means for your listeners that we don't own any allegiance to the uh um to the commissioner's office so george samus who uh spent some time with the twins i'm emphasizing a little time with the twins <laughs> uh, was playing with as my dad used to say three clubs one coming one going and one actually on the field and uh, he put together a group of guys that absolutely refused. They, they couldn't beat you on paper. They just ended up like Kevin Millar. You know, they just found a way to beat you. And so we win the championship. And understanding that 10 miles away, the Minnesota Twins are playing, you know, Major League Baseball, you can't very well stand and tell people, hey, we're playing the greatest baseball in the world. And you have to know your place. Because we've sold, uh, I don't know, 100% of our tickets for the last 28 years. And the reason we have is because we understand the pecking order. So we decided to have a parade to honor our champions. It was our fifth championship um, since the Saints have been um, rebirthed, if you will. And we had a, a parade that was a block long. So it shows that we know our place. We understand in the pecking order that this might not be a big deal. And the fans turned out, and we had a howl. It was just a really wonderful one-block parade, which is just about what it takes 
to get a parade started. You know, there's room for four cars. It was appropriate. <laughs> that, I mean, that is, that's why I love you. The, that's the VEC DNA. I mean, your dad always used to talk about incongruity, but the incongruity is what makes stuff like that tick, isn't it? You know, it's, it's just. Yeah. yeah, people really get carried away. It's never knowing quite what to expect. And, of course, when you make an announcement and say we're going to have a parade, everybody's like, well, you know, you're certainly not going to come through. Um, you know, Thunder Canyon and uh, 2 million people. So what are you going to do? Well, you have one that takes approximately 38 seconds from start to finish and makes people smile in a time when, when you know, laughter and, and joy are they're hard to come by right now. So people had a lot of fun with it. And, and uh, we lost five players over the course of the uh, of the season to major league organizations, which is really what independent baseball is all about. That and a little of the old man's incongruity. Yeah. You know, um, seven straight years of declining attendance in major league baseball. Um, does, does major league baseball pay any attention to, to what's happening at the grassroots level? And I, I brought something in here because uh, you have flirted with Tampa Bay and Detroit. And uh, there was a quote you said, oh, here comes the minor league guy. And you said you would get a little uppity once in a while and say, yeah, we've done over 90% occupancy in St. Paul for 25 years. Now, check this out. Based on just being nice to people. It really isn't such an earth-shattering concept. You know, what, what, can up, what can the major leagues learn from what you guys are doing? The, 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 um, I remember years ago when David Stern um, and I were having a conversation about about the back then the NBDL, the you know the developmental league for the NBA, and he said to me, Mike, we can get by just using the NBA name. And I said, David, if you really want to be successful, what you do is you go to the hinterlands to minor league baseball teams and find men and women who work 16-hour days because they love it, and you'll find some of the best promoters. And so the first thing Major League Baseball has to do is look at the people who are running their systems throughout their operation. You have to make the um, players accessible. That's the biggest problem um, with Major League Baseball right now. You know, there aren't any nicknames because everybody's too cool, and I guess that makes me a, a dinosaur, and I'm good with that. But the one thing that you do have to realize is that players, if they're going to become heroes to kids, need to be accessible. And that's one of the things that minor league baseball, um, you know, really, really does well. Not that we don't have our own warts and and try to behave once in a while um, like our major league brethren, but you just have to be accessible. And once you do that, it's amazing how, you know, the duration of the game, you have to make things more interesting. People come to see a Saints game because they don't know what's going to happen. And and I'm not upset by someone saying, hey, I went to a, a Saints game. It was like a street festival. And by the way, a baseball game broke out. You know, get over yourself. People need to be entertained and fed. Their souls need to be fed. And, and, and I think you do that simply by emphasizing customer service, making it entertaining, and make sure something's always happening because – you know, the game isn't always the most interesting thing going on. There was a New York Times story this week about uh, the women who knit at baseball games. You know, I mean, and I guess... I guess... I, <laughs> you know, you've been to the park in Charleston, yeah. and you remember that view of the Ashley yeah. River, right? You yeah. look right over. 
I sold eight tickets when I first got here. And so that must have been, we opened in 96, 97 to a group of women who sat in the very back row and did it. The very back row is important because the breeze coming off the Ashley River was wonderful. And they would sit up there and knit. And I asked them one time, are you guys going to renew? And they said, oh, yes, we love this. And I said, how do you think we did this year? And they said, what do you mean, how'd you do? I said, well, you know, what, there was a couple of ball games going on while you were sitting here. Oh, I'm sure that's true, Mike. You're so funny. The fact is, is that people ultimately will pay attention to whatever you want if you get them in under any particular reason. And so I just thought that was the most wonderful thing it gave me. Here's what baseball has. And, Dave, and you're the king of this. Is I walk into a joint the other night and there's a guy one of my daughter's uh, doctors rebecca's doctor is a is a fellow by the name of kevin Harmon, and his father i'd never met for the first time he's from cincinnati and so don Harmon and i have this conversation and i'm going to show him how smart i am i said harvey haddix was the youngest guy to play he looked at me and he smiled and he said that would be joe nuxall Mr. Beck. And I looked at him, and of course, we looked it up, and he, of course, was right. I shot off my mouth. And I, we have this unspoken language, this wonderful, the statistics that connect generation after generation of people that you don't know. Who cares what reason they come in for? Yeah. It's, it's entertaining them once they come there. So. Okay, we got we got to take a break. We got to take a break for some spots and come back. I, I want to talk a little bit about Chicago and a little bit about Satchel Page. So you got a few more minutes with us, Michael? Absolutely. Okay, thanks away. Don't go don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Never stay happy So I think I need a new Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN AM 720. We're on the phone with the next commissioner of baseball, Mike Vec. How you doing, Michael? <laughs> well, you know the last time I saw you, Dave? Do you remember the last time I saw you? It's Was it in St. Paul? No, it was at Jazz Fest. And oh, we that's right. I was really sick. Kind of yeah. Making our way. You were really sick, yeah. which I am today, and we were making our way. Both to see John Rivers perform. That's, that was a terrific show, wasn't it? That's right. Then I went back to my camper van and collapsed. Yeah, I had I had like bronchitis or pneumonia or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that was the last time. I love a man well traveled. Sorry, just, anyhow. Yeah, it just bumped into you. Um, so the news um, up here, everybody's talking about Joe Madden. I, you might get bounced tonight. There's all this talk about them having a meeting after the game in St. Louis. And I want to I read something our friend, he's been on the show, our friend just does a great job of covering Major League Baseball uh, for the Tribune, uh, Paul Sullivan. And he was talking about how if this happens, Chicago will uh, lose a uni- unique voice. And here's this is why I wanted to uh, get your uh, reaction to this. He goes, this is what Paul wrote, I believe it's for tomorrow's paper. This city embraces rebels, nonconformists, and nutjobs, whether it's Jim McMahon, John Belushi, or Dennis Rahman. I would add the Vec family. If you can do your job at a high level and make us laugh at the same time, you're good for life. What is it about Chicago? I mean, you guys are Chicago legends. What is it about Chicago, why people react like that? 
I, I think it's 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 the city that works. I think we have a working um, man and woman's ethic. Um, I think we are very open. I think we like people who are plain spoken, if you will. And so, I, you know, I really I admire Joe Madden. I believe it's a huge mistake. He'll be employed in about 20 minutes. <laughs> Um, if they drop the hammer on him. And I would only point out, to how did it work for the White Sox when they got rid of Harry Carey? How yeah. was that? How did that work out for him? So I, I just think that I, I, I think they took a, take a long look. He's a character out of, a, out of the great Chicago, um, you know, history book. I mean, this is a guy who... If he doesn't talk to the baseball, I'll, uh, you know, what's his name in 76 with Detroit, he's got his own way of doing things, and it's worked. Mm-hmm. I, I say he stays, and, and if he goes, it helps the White Stockings in terms of the PR move. Baseball, I mean, baseball needs big personalities, and, and Joe is one of those, you know. And I, I get, yeah. the reporters have to love covering him. He's always good for quotes, and you know. Well, I mean, and and not only that, but but the fans like, you know, I, you were reading his remarks for the last two or three. He's like, I keep them loose. I'm staying loose myself. I have fun with it. We've had fun, you know, and 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 the, so they didn't win it. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that he's. He's done an unbelievable job the last four and a half seasons. I mean, let's face it. Look at what he's done. Have How you, many guys are there? One more games? What five or four? Yeah. Have you crossed? Have you crossed? You must have crossed paths with him somewhere, right? Were you? Well, yeah. And he was. He was. Um, um, you know, really legendary coming out of uh, out of Tampa Bay, and that granted, he was there after, but. Uh, People love working with him. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy that when he um, um, is in town and, and, and the Cubbies are off, he stops across it, goes over to watch the White Sox and stops and sees Bertucci and visits Larusa and those guys. He's just a class act. He's a good guy, and, and he's a great ambassador for the game. So, you know, when he hangs it up, and he's still going to get another managerial job. I mean, there'll be three people begging him. I, I Look at the, you know, at the guys lining up. I think, yeah, right. so it'll be an interesting meeting. You're very modest. I, I always want you to plug this book. Um, I found it up in St. Paul when I went and saw you. Um, I, I don't know if it's still available. If it is, you can tell people how to find it. I always, it's keep, I keep it right on my desk. Another boring derivative piece of crap business book. But I just every time I just pull to a different page, and this is this is what we're doing. Page one sixty six. If it makes you laugh, it could be a revenue generator. Instead of dismissing what's funny, find a way to use it to grow your business. So talk, is that book still available, and how can people find it? It's for the business world, not for the sports world so much. Yeah, you know, it's um, you can find it on uh, Amazon.com, or you can go to FumblesGoodTeam.net um, um, and and pick up a copy. But, but basically, it comes down to the idea that that every great idea is born usually from a bad idea and a, a and a terrible idea and so once you kind of figure out how to to rub the edges off and and make it more acceptable People say no all the time. It's the basis of improv. You know, you keep saying and, and you keep saying 
But there's no such thing as no. And, and the thing that kills us all, we get up in the morning, we go into the boss's office, and we go, I have a great idea for how to revolutionize our business and make it more efficient for our customers. And no, that kills it. Explain mm-hmm. yourself. And promotions are, are the same way. Mm-hmm. And um, is that what you do? A little bit you do. I know you've been speaking a lot. I mean, do you go and speak to uh, companies? And do you do that in the off-season? Um, the fun yeah, is good it's team. A, it's been an interesting it, – it's really been interesting because – you know, in 2005, I wrote this this silly little book called Fun is Good. And, you know, I was pleased with the sales. I mean, for me, it, it was a terrific opportunity to vent a little bit. But then the, then the recession hit. Um, and, and from 2010 on, I've sold almost two times the amount of books because who would ever think that today fun is in shorter supply? Um, than it was when we wrote it. And, and they're simple little things. You just say hello to people um, when, you're, when you're in the office and, and when you're on the phone. Um, you think about the number of people who don't bother to look up. Yeah. And they're so busy, you know, playing their fantasy football that they, don't, that they don't speak. And so it's just a collection of things you can do eight or ten that don't cost you a nickel, that can revolutionize the way your business works, and it ends up with fewer sick days, with more productive people. People want to be part of something desperately, but they want to be part of something they can be proud of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to be part of Fire and Joe Madden. Yeah, yeah. Connection and community <laughs> are, are really are, are really important right now to make those connections. Yeah, and, and it's amazing that, that it's taking the kids – from Silicon Valley and the tech to point out to make people comfortable, they're more productive. You know, I, I think it's I think it's great what the millennials have have brought to the workplace because they sit down and interview you. They go, yeah, okay, you've got a position open, but what do you do with your profits? And what are you going to do for my career? You know, I wish I'd had the chutzpah to say that, but that's always what is in the back of everyone's mind, and now the kids are saying it. I'm all for it. Uh, last thing before we let you, uh, you did you go? I, you were, I, you were, how the hurricane affect you down there in in Charleston? You know something, Dave. It's so funny. It's the first one. My wife Libby and I, we've gone through Andrew um, with Night Train, our our son, and yeah. with Rebecca, our daughter, and we rode this one out, and it was the scariest. We, we stayed in Charleston, um, downtown at Rebecca's house, which is eight feet above sea level, and it blew for 12 hours, solid. And um, it, it was <laughs> – hey, I know there's nothing to this global warming, but, hey, something's gotten the gods annoyed. <laughs> that circle was right, you know, and it all comes back to the working man. <laughs> And last thing, like I said, I, I tell you, Mike, I mean, every time I go to this, the, well, I don't know what they call it now, all guaranteed rate fielders, but I mean, I think about your dad, I think about your family, and I was thinking about Satchel Page. I think September 25th was the anniversary of, he pitched for the athletics at the uh, age of 42 or 43, and he got a win. So give me a couple of Satchel Page stories before we let you go. Satchel Page was gangly. Satchel Page was this kind of beanstalk. But the thing that people don't really realize about Satchel Page is that if you were a child, he was enchanted. 
And he was very well, very well dressed and, and, and very well so spoken, but very soft spoken. And he kept a creature in his left jacket pocket, Tom Thumb. And Tom Thumb knew the answer to everything. And if you were a kid, Satchel would entertain you for hours with all of these stories because he was the original, you know, rambling man. And 42, maybe. I always loved Taylor Spink going, you know, he couldn't say to the old man what he really thought. So he said, you're making a travesty of the game by hiring this old guy. Nobody knew how old Satchel was, including Satchel. But what did he go on to do when he was the rookie of the year in Cleveland? He was, I think, four and two and had a, I don't know, two-something ERA. He was named to the Major League uh, All-Star team in the American League in 52 and 53 when he was 46 and 47. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. You know, forerunner before Hoyt Wilhelm ever thought of. How old were you when you first saw him? I was seven or eight when yeah. he made his way to uh, our place in Maryland. Yeah, it had to be. And yeah. oh my God, was he entertained. Yeah, it had to be for a seven or eight year old. Well, Mike, thanks for jumping in. Um, like I said, you've been on my mind a lot. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff going on. So I really appreciate you taking your time out tonight. And um, best of luck to you down there in, in Charleston. And um, and good luck in uh, in this off season and stuff. Okay, Mike? I appreciate it. So all my, all my nocturnal journal friends, man. Yeah, you're our, you're our most regular guest. Go Twins. They don't know how good they might be. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks uh, to our hipster, St. Mike Vec. And uh, we'll See be you, back man. with more Nocturnal Journal after David Jennings and the news. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN 720, and that was one of Studs Terkel's favorite singers, Mahalia Jackson. Jamira Alexander, thanks for returning to the Nocturnal Journal. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and this is your second time, right? Yes, yes. We were here before with a big group of people, right? We were. We were here with uh, the students from Carl Scherz High School back in April. Yeah, and you're president of Public Narrative. Yes. So tell the listeners, uh, first of all, what that is, and we'll get into the Studs Terkel Awards. But Sure. So Public Narrative, uh, formerly Community Media Workshop, is a 30-year organization that works with journalists and community organizations, and basically to tell better stories around Chicago. Um, the whole concept is that we offer communications classes and different events, like our uh, speed dating event, where we connect journalists and community organizations. Um, just for the sake of telling better stories, you know, really shaping and crafting the public narrative around Chicago. Um, I'm really excited to be president of the organization. Uh, for the last five years, my colleague Susie Schultz was the president, and now she's over at the Museum of Broadcast Communication. So really excited about that opportunity for her. And then opportunities that we have to partner in the future. Um, but for the last five years, we've been we've been focusing on uh, sexism, racism, and xenophobia. And we'll still focus on those things, but in a more broader uh from a more broader approach uh, in focusing on public safety, public health, and public education. So I'm really excited about what that means for the future of the organization. How did you get involved in the group? Yeah, so I um, I was working with, I had just 
uh, received uh, a contract with uh, After School Matters to do a social media education program called Hashtags and Handles. And I met a woman at an arts reception at the Cultural Center who insisted that I meet Susie. And when she connected Susie and I, we hit it off, did a few trainings. And I'm thinking that we're going to talk more about, like, how do we, you know, continue to perfect our work together. And Susie's like, well, how would you like to run this place? And that was nearly a year ago. Well, that was a year ago. Um, I've been president since November of last year. And Susie just stepped away at the middle of August, actually. Yeah. And what have you learned? Oh, my God. The the, the shorter answer would be what haven't I learned? Uh-huh. Um, it's funny that, you know, you can be hit with some of any kind of news at one time. And I think the greatest lesson I've learned is how to be reserved in all of it. Um, and understanding that, like, my approach to it truly as the leader is going to set the course of how things go moving forward. I think that's the greatest lesson that I've learned in everything. Um, and so I, I just truly, Dave, I feel like the sky really and truly is the limit. Ro, are you are you on there? Yes, sir. Okay, I wanted to bring Ro in on this because it's, it's all kind of a symmetrical. Ro's now an intern at the Chicago Sun-Times, <laughs> where I worked for a very long time. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. So I wanted to ask, I wanted to see if you had any questions, but Ro, what, what made you want to get in, in media uh, in the first place? And Jemire, you can ex- maybe respond to this. You know, interestingly enough, I thought that I wanted to do pre-law initially. So um, I initially went to college for pre-law. I think I was that major for all of a week. And then I met my TV director at uh, Illinois State University, and she was just basically like, yeah, no, journalism is is where you should be, so this is where we're going to put you. Um, And as I continued to work on my craft and learn new things, I kind of just fell in love with it. Um, I was a uh, news reporter for the the local newspaper, um, news editor. Which one was that? What paper was that? The Vedette. Okay. Yep, the Vedette at Illinois State University. Um, and so I did a couple things, and, and I just followed it ever since. It was, it was the the idea of being able to craft a story, as Jamira mentioned, um, and having that narrative, being being the voice for that narrative was always what interested me most. Um, when I talk to kids, I mean, I mean, when I was coming up, it was like print. I mean, I just wanted to be a newspaper guy. <laughs> and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this, row. I mean, th- both of you, can you just talk about all the different platforms you guys can use? I mean, I, I know you're young. I never asked you how, o- how old you are. But look at you. You're doing WGN Radio. You're working for the Sun-Times. There's yep. a lot of different plan. I don't know. If you probably, you're, are you doing video for the Sun-Times? I don't do video for the Sun-Times, but I do do video production. Yeah. Um, that's actually one of the things I'm in school for is TV and radio production. Uh, so I, I've had a little bit of experience with everything. I think, especially in these times, it's just important to have that overall mm-hmm. um, experience. We got social media kind of taking its own toll on on our industry and changing things up a lot. So having that definitely makes you more marketable. And so that's what I was aimed for. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Sure, yeah. of course. So when I was in college, I studied radio, TV, broadcasting. And three months before graduation, I wanted to change my major. Not because I didn't love, like, the functions of of everything. Like, I learned how to direct the news. I was a floor director at uh, the NBC affiliate in East Peoria. It was just that the stories that we were reporting were so negative that I was just tired of it. And I didn't want to do it unless I could, you know, really, like, navigate the stories the way that I wanted to. And, um... 
And so just in learning like how to use all the different like mediums that's out there, like you, you got social media, you got podcasts, you got blogs, you got like all these other creative ways of telling stories. I think it's important too, like you said, to be versatile in that, like to be able to shift from one platform to another. But I think the most important thing is just finding like where your strengths lie and just like staying in that lane. Because mm-hmm. um, it's something about when you have found what you are really gifted to do. Like, I don't care if there's like a thousand people that do what you do. They can never do it like you do it. Agreed. And when you like really being at public narrative has really given me a place to really like hone my craft, hone my experiences as a trainer. I mean, all these different things that I knew was in me, but I didn't know to this degree. And, you know, I, as I share with people, like, what all has been done in in, in less than a year, they're like, oh, my God. I'm, and, and to me, it doesn't feel like, oh, my God. You know, it just feels like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. So I think that when we're exploring, like, careers in, in journalism, I think it's important to just find where your, where your strengths are, be it an editor, a photojournalist, whatever that might be, because somebody is going to be inspired by what you bring to the table. For both you guys, um, and, and even in the last segment, we touched on the, the importance of community and 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 connections in, in today's world. So you talk about social media going out, but what do you hear from your audience, for, for both of you? Um, for me, I get a lot of, because I talk a lot on my own personal social media about like how to be professional. My biggest, my biggest passion lately has been teaching, especially people of color, Um, students of color how to be in such a a saturated industry be professional in that industry and and make the proper connections so a lot of times I just get I get a lot of questions business questions or you know inquiries about how I did something or how I got to where I am and that's uh the big bulk uh, of my audience and what what do you tell them I usually tell them it's it's all about the work that you're willing to put in and the network that you create, right? So ultimately, we live in a industry that is all about actually our model, joining the conversation, having these open relationships with people, and building upon that. So I always let people know the best way to to work in this industry, to keep a job in the industry, is always number one a network, um, and two just making sure that you're spending the time that it takes to hone your craft, to really learn what it is, like you said earlier, you're good at, and and run with that. Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't driven you out of the radio business yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> not yet. Working with me. What did you say? More drawn yeah. into it. <laughs> <laughs> but same thing with public narrative and talk about I mean, who you're on again who the audience is what they tell you what the needs are yeah, yeah. so our audience are journalists and yeah. our audience are our community members and they may include like thought leaders from different nonprofits or youth or um we're expanding to to begin to work with some corporate entities um but everyone basically is just kind of like I don't know, like they their eyes are open to the thought of communications training. Everyone thinks that we commu- that they communicate well. Like and the truth of the matter is there's something about our communication, all of us, mine included, that is like needs perfecting. You know, and it's an ongoing process, especially as times are changing, technology is changing, as as everything is shifting around us, it's just important to make sure that we're communicating effectively and in doing so, be it via email or how we communicate on 
on social media? How do we translate our messages? And what was so awesome, like this this past week, we had a lot of census activities and we uh, did a training for the Latino Policy Forum. And it was a spokesperson related training and basically telling your census story. And so uh, the the uh, participants got a chance to interview one another uh, and, and they were recorded in doing so. And just the feedback that we got from that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I look like this on camera. Well, how did that work? And where was that at? So this was at uh, the Metropolitan Planning Council. They hosted us uh, for a two-part training on Tuesday and Thursday. And, I mean, it was it was great. They got a chance to see themselves on camera, monitor their body language, look at how they show up, you know, in conversations. And just, like, identify what they want to alter about that and telling their own stories. And would you, or maybe you have, would you network with Roe at the Sun-Times and stuff? Of course yeah. I would. Yeah. Of course I, I would. That. Yeah. Of course I would. I think that it's, it's important. Like, so... I, I love people. You know, I, I love people. I know a lot of people, but I, I can't say that I know them personally, but I'm, I'm personable. Um, and I'm just a firm believer that when our paths cross, like, I don't know when, you know, I might need you, you might need me, how it may make sense for us to work together in the future, anything like that. So I'm going to do my best not to burn any bridges, but I'm also not going to look at someone that I might not need today as though I'll never need them. Yeah. I think, I, I think, I know that one of the things that has really like turned me off to like a lot of like people over the years has been how they've treated people they thought they didn't need. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah. a true sign of character. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a break and we're gonna come back and then we'll talk about studs. Yes. Okay, yes. so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. <laughs> Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. We got Jemira Alexander, president of Public Narrative here in Chicago, and on the mic, Chicago Sun Times reporter Ro Coleman. Hello, hello. <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks. That sounded good. I yeah, like that. I bet has anyone done that yet? Not yet. Okay, there that you felt go. good. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about studs and talk about the studs turkle. And, and for somebody who's just driving around, talk about who Studs Turkle was. Yes. Yeah, so I've never personally met Studs Turkle, but I feel like with every story that I hear about him that I come closer and closer. Um, to knowing him. Um, Studs Terkel was a broadcaster, an author, a community advocate who brought everyday people together around stories. Um, if you ever listen to his archives, which can be found uh, on the Chicago History Museum's website, um, you will hear of Studs covering everyday issues, bringing everyday people together, I mean, around a conversation that it's like there, there was no status or there was no... Uh, elitism or anything of that nature um studs was an everyday guy you know from what i've learned about him and so the studs turkle awards is to honor journalists who in the turkillian way cover stories here in chicago and uh the winner you know studs listened yes <laughs> you know that's that's really interesting to be able to listen these days but studs is a good listener mm -hmm. so uh you're going to have the um award ceremony it is open to the public yes Five thirty to 8.30 p.m. We're at October 17th. Yes. Or at Joby Art Center, 1029 West 35th Street. 
and talk about this year's uh, honorees. Yes, 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 yes. We have a great lineup. Um, they are. I'm so excited to celebrate these journalists. Um, for our 2019 Sus Turkle Community Media Award, we have Deborah Douglas, who is the managing editor of MLK 50, um, and Britt Julius, who is a freelance writer and editor. She's written for the Chicago Tribune as well as Refinery 29, um, and she's captured Chicago stories in that way. Uh, Jerome McDonald, who is over at WBEZ, and Annie Sweeney at the Chicago Tribune. And so for our uh, Uplifting Voices Award is Jeff McCarter of Free Spirit Media. And then we have a new award that we've created um, called the Ripple Effect Award. And that award is given to uh, a journalist not based in Chicago, but their work has made an impact in Chicago and beyond. And that award winner is uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York, Sun, uh, the new York Times um, for the, 20, the 1619 Project. And um, I won one of these. Yes, two, you did. 2013. It is. It's a great honor. It really is. What does it's, it mean to you to be a, a Turkle winner? It just. It, well, it just. It's you know. I mean, I grew up here. I did meet him a few times. I remember taking him one time to. They were doing uh, working at Jones uh, Jones High Jones Prep and. Uh, and I had to pick him up up there in Uptown, and I was driving down there, and we, he was talking and stuff. I go, man, I just don't want to get in a car accident. With stuff, <laughs> stuff, stuff. But you know, Fresh I mean, I read all those books. I, I remember Division Street America, working and stuff. And he was he was a character, and he just you know he, what can I say? He loved people. He really loved people. And I wanted to bring this up and maybe bring Roe back in on this, and I will talk a little bit more about the winners. But you were talking about how some of the stuff in violence and that kind of steered you away, but he loved telling the human story. Mm-hmm. How do you do that today for both of you guys when there's limits on time and space and stuff? How do you, how do, you do that? I mean, Studs' books were really, really you know, long and packed mm-hmm. with oral histories. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? For me, I look more so to how much time do I have and what are the key points I need my audience to get? Um, and then ultimately still putting like the longer pieces and the longer uh, pieces of information out there because ultimately the however long I have that should draw you into deeper learning um, it should take you on a journey to learn more and if I put if I put that information out there then you're going to find you know other pieces to elaborate on so I think it, it I really cherish being a lifelong learner and I think if we can create that within the stories that we share no matter how much time we have I think that really like helps to inform your audience same question Ro and you know we kind of do that with this show I mean we don't bring people in for like six or seven minutes and, and kick them out we try to we try to stretch it you know yeah um, I know for me I, I I grew up in the social media era you know mm-hmm. so I understand that people's attention spans are just not like they used to be mm-hmm. and I kind of use that as my challenge so I always go about it you know thinking well what is it that I can say to give you the information you need while keeping you interested and wanting to learn more Mm -hmm. Um, much like what Jamira brought up already Um, and that's normally how I go about it what can I say that'll draw you in whether it's a quick tease or you know a one-liner that'll want you to learn more about whatever it is we're talking about gain more information um, and and be with the times um, I like it when uh, last time you were on the show, we were on, you had high school students with you about mm-hmm. keeping uh, young people engaged in yes. this. Uh, we were talking before the show. One of your one of your bylines this week was about the climate change protest. Yep. Talk about that and what was like the process of interviewing the kids and did you get any response on that? And- I did. I actually got a lot bigger response on Twitter, um, which <laughs> makes sense writing the Times than I thought I would. So what I went down and did while I was covering it was just live tweeting um, and 
and that was live tweeting. That was yep. Yeah. So I was live tweeting and um, having these interactions with people about what was going on, or you know, different quotes being said, so on and so forth. And and with Twitter being my main source of connection with people during uh, the time of the strike, I, it just gives you this more well-rounded idea of where we are, and um, where you should be moving forward with. So that's that's what I use most. Jamaira, what do you what do you hear from the kids when you go out in the field and stuff? I mean, climate's big on their big on their list, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Talk about what you hear from them. I hear so much from them, you know, as far as their ideas around climate, around violence, around violence. Yeah. You know what's so what's so appealing to me is the topics that we don't hear so much about in the mainstream, and what has really um, stuck out is the topic around children coming from broken homes and how and how these young people are relating is especially the ones that we work with are relating a child coming from a broken home to like so many different issues that stem within their lives and how it has like this this uh this trickle down effect I think that when it comes to issues like uh, violence, gun violence uh, control or or gun control, I'm sorry, gun control or violence prevention, climate, I think that they gravitate towards what they're most interested in. And I think most times it's because they see some type of solution, Mm -hmm. but they though they may not fully have it, but they're willing to explore it. And for some, I know. I've had conversations with elders who have uh, kind of expressed how millennials or, you know, younger generations are kind of all over the place. And it wasn't like that in their day and that sort of thing. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, for however old we are presently, we were never 16, 17, 18, 14 in 2019. For sure. So we're not the experts on that you yeah. know like they have a different purview that we have to respect and honor yeah um what's the cri- I don't know I, what's the criteria to get a studs award right now so what do you guys look at and there's a is there a panel um how does it work yeah so we have um a, a nomination form that has to be submitted and anyone can submit a nomination um on that nomination form you have to include at least three uh samples of the person's work um, or the journalist's work, in addition to uh, explaining why you believe that this person deserved a, a Studs Terkel Award, uh, simply just explaining, like, you know, the nature of the quality, the character of their work, their body of work. Um, we had over 70 applicant, uh, nominations this year. And those nominations, I mean, it was a tough call. We had a, a great uh, group of, of women who came together, um, past Turkle winners, uh, Lolly Bowen, Kathy Cheney, Monica Ng, Maudlin, uh, Ihejirka, uh, Martha Irvine, Carrie Litterson, Mary Mitchell, Natalie Moore, Mary Schmidt, and then, of course, Susie and I were on the panel um, and or on the committee. And, and the committee uh, members were just phenomenal. Um, what's beautiful about it is we come together, we go through all of the nominations round robin style and begin the process of elimination. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, there's some deliberation that comes up in like who we're selecting and that sort of thing. Um, and it can get a little heated, you know, because people are passionate about who they want, you know, to win an award. Um, but what's what's great about it is that when it you, when you narrow down to the actual winners, there's such quality. I mean, it's just. It's organic how it happens, really. And I'm I'm really looking forward to what it means to come together in one room to celebrate this great group of people. 
Ro, this is one of the best journalism cities in America. I agree. You're real lucky to, <laughs> to be part of it. I feel really. lucky. It Thank really, you. Really, really, really is. I don't want to let you go without talking about MLK 50. So yes. talk talk about what that is, justice through journalism. And Deborah has a, has a, has a great line. I was reading some background, uh, walking in for uh, purpose for my people and yes. stuff. So talk about what that site does and what her work is. Yes, there. yes. So uh, MLK 50, um, of course, I think it was last year was the 50th year since uh Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. And what they do basically is like carrying forth his dream, you know, in, in equal rights for, for all people, but doing it from a journalism perspective. And so uh, most recently there was a story that they published out of Memphis, I believe it was, where there was a hospital that was like charging people like several times over. And it was really costing a lot of them to go into bankruptcy. Well, they wrote this piece. It got a lot of traction and just... I want to say sometime this week, a few days ago maybe, um, the piece published that the hospital cleared all of the uh, all the patients that owed this debt. They cleared them of that debt. And, wow. I mean, it was just phenomenal to see that justice was administered through that body of work, that piece of journalism. And it only went, I mean, by that time, Deborah had already been selected as a Turkle winner. Um, it just hadn't been announced yet. But it only... For me, only solidified, you know, why she would be. I mean, um, one of the committee members um, said that, like, she embodied studs. She, oh, she, really? You know, man, yeah. she she embodies that. They brought this one word into the room I hadn't heard until that night um, was that she was indeed Turkillian. Yeah. Um, and so I believe that was Maudie that said uh, that she embodied studs. And you all got to wear red socks at the ceremony. Yeah, right? well, yeah yes. I did. I, yes. I remember I did. That was yes. Stud's trademark. Uh, Ro, do you have a, um, I, I know you're young. Do you have a field you'd want to get into? I mean, we just talked about investigative stuff there or, or features or is it is it too early to make a call on that? Um, you know what? It's a little too early. I, I am stuck right now between politics and community narratives. Uh, so I'm I'm trying to figure out how we're going to. I don't know that you have to be stuck. I think, well, I mean, I think that's a lane that you can create and and be the first of its kind. I've I've heard someone uh, refer to a young woman who was just really and truly up and coming, up and and coming journalist, refer to her as the next Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. But the more I got to know her, like just this past weekend, um, I was just thinking like, no, she's the first Georgia Dawkins. Right. You know, she's the only Georgia Dawkins. So like, Ro, what do you bring to the table, you know, and just own that. Because when you think about it, like when so I got on social media in like 2004, I think 2004, 2005, probably 2005. And at the time, Facebook was only for um, college students. And I had no idea that we would be here, you know. But just in exploring, like, you know, okay, I want to help people tell, you know, their story better and, and leverage social media for business, I started a consulting company yeah. that okay. helps me. I'm sorry. Yeah, we got to run. So thanks, Jemira Alexander. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Ro Coleman. Thank, Thank you, you for listening tonight.